Thanks, Simon. I suspect most people have noticed that since Mark left, we've all started preaching from the middle here. This is uh, Tom, the revolutionary. Uh, and I think we need to get ourselves a new little pulpit, one of these plastic ones that all the great Christian preachers use in the uh, evangelistic American television series when you watch them preaching. They have these big plastic things with lots of books on and all that sort of stuff. Makes you feel really important. So I'm fourth on in this mini-series that uh, we put together for the summer when the six ministers and lay ministers from here at St. Paul's preach on a passage that they've selected, a favourite passage or a particular passage that's been important for them. I don't know how many people were here last week. Great, most, quite a lot of you, most of you. So I was, I was really taken by what Claire had to share with us last week, particularly because uh, Christine and I were together in Osnabrück in Germany when Steve and Claire came and joined us there in about 1987, something like that. And it was not long after, as we heard last week, that she'd become a Christian. Osnabrück had a small uh, garrison, army garrison church, and the padre there was a guy called Derek Heaver, who was uh, an ex-parachute regiment padre, He'd served in the Falkland Islands, quite a hard-hitting guy. And I remember his first sermon, I don't think Steve and Claire were there, but his first sermon was on the letter to the church Laodicea in, in uh, Revelation. When God says to the church in Laodicea that you are lukewarm and uh, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And Derek took that to be a sermon on saying that lukewarm Christians make God sick. And this went down like a lead balloon amongst the congregation uh, who were pretty lukewarm, I have to say. But uh, Claire and Steve became good friends over the next couple of years, and I always saw them as very mature Christians. It was interesting listening to Claire and then chatting to Steve afterwards. And a lesson perhaps for all of us as we look around the church at people around us thinking, the people on my left and on my right are clearly very mature Christians as opposed to, as opposed to me. But uh, Claire and Steve had been Christians for even less than, than Christine and I. We became Christians in 1981. But I found myself thinking as Claire was speaking that when we choose a passage from the Bible, often it probably reflects how we became Christians in the first place. And Steve reminded me in a conversation after the service of a guy called Ian Jury. Anybody remember Ian? Yeah, a lot of people. Ian uh, and I were great friends. We served together in various uh, deployments, including the Gulf War in, in 1991. And uh, Ian, together with Polly Hudson and myself, used to run the Youth Fellowship here at St. Paul's back in about, uh, well, about 25 years ago, I think. And uh, Ian used to say that people become Christians by going down either the M1 or the M2. Going down the M1 was being like on the Damascus Road. 1M in Damascus, you'll note. And having some sort of striking, emotional, heart-driven experience, like Paul being confronted by the living Lord Jesus on his journey. The M2, with two M's, rather like the Emmaus Road, uh, where Jesus walked alongside the disciples for some times, for some time, for quite a while, gently unraveling and explaining the scriptures and what they had to say about him. And Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that we need to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And that was one of the passages I thought about preaching on today because I certainly needed some convincing to become a Christian. I tend to be a head-driven guy, so I'm probably more of an M2 man than an M1 man. I don't know how, how you all became Christians. But my chosen passage today, therefore, is more of a head than a heart issue. It's a question. It's what I call the killer question. It's a question that sits alongside a couple of other key questions, which I reckon between them summarise the challenge of the Gospels. 
Questions that demand a personal response with eternal consequences. And ultimately, as we see, that response has to be both a heart-driven as well as a head-driven response. The killer question appears in three of the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 16, Luke chapter 9, and Mark chapter 8. And in Mark chapter 8, Mark's got 16 chapters in his Gospel. This is almost exactly halfway through Mark's Gospel. And Jesus poses it in a place called Caesarea Philippi. I don't know if you can see this uh, pen up here. Here's Caesarea Philippi up the top. Here's Jerusalem down here. The Jordan, the Dead Sea, the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, of course, does a lot of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. Heads up to Caesarea Philippi up here, which is about the furthest place that he is away from Jerusalem in his ministry. And he poses this question, and then having posed it, he turns from Caesarea Philippi with great determination to go and meet his fate in Jerusalem, where, of course, his trial, his execution, and the resurrection await him. So he asks at a crucial time, halfway through his ministry, probably roughly, this question of the disciples. And he asks them, what have people been saying about me? And they tell him what they've been picking up from the crowds, including the fact that some people think he's John the Baptist or other prophets. And then he asks them a very simple question. A simple, but perhaps I would argue the most important question in the whole of Scripture. But what about you, he says? Who do you say that I am? Pam is going to come and read two extracts from Matthew's Gospel to lead us into the heart of this issue today. Just exactly who is Jesus? What are we to make of him? And are we prepared to stand firm alongside him when the going gets tough? Pam. Uh, So we begin with Matthew 11. Verses 1 to 15, and then go on to Matthew 16, 13 to 16. So it's page 976. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on my account. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom was written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. 
for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He who has ears, let him hear. I reckon the most important question we face is that of Jesus Christ. Our life here in the world today and our future life in eternity depends entirely and solely upon our answer to that question. Who do you say I am? In one of the first ever recorded sermons in Acts chapter 4, the Apostle Peter declares that there is no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. And this name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his letter to the church in Philippi, he declares that at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he, Jesus Christ, is indeed Lord. The New Testament starts with Jesus and everything it has to say revolves around him. All the four Gospels present Jesus to us, hold him up before us and relate a series of cameos about him, his teaching, his healings, his confrontations, his arrest his death, and crucially, of course, his resurrection. In the Acts of the Apostles, the first Christians went around and spoke of little else but Jesus. And all of the letters in the New Testament are full of his name. Everything calls our attention, focuses us in, onto just one man, Jesus. Christianity is essentially all about the person of Jesus Christ. It's not primarily a teaching, nor a philosophy, nor even a way of life. It's above everything else a relationship, a relationship to Jesus. And before everything else, we have to come up with an answer to a pretty simple question. Who is he? Scripture refuses to discuss our questions and our problems except in terms of this person. I recognize that all is not well and I, I want to live a better life. I want to sort my life out. To be a person of better character, of integrity, of morality. Okay, replies the New Testament. But before we can discuss any of those things, what do you make of the man, Jesus? Where does he come into your scheme of things? What is his place and position in your whole outlook and worldview? What is the prism through which you view the world? Is it through him or through something or someone else? The Gospels make amazing claims about him. That he was none other than the Son of God come down into the world. That he is the Saviour of the world. That he came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world in order to restore us back to a relationship with the Creator God. And the question is, do we really believe that? All too often, we may want to soften the blow, 
to skirt around such dogmatic assertions. But there is no more dogmatic book in the whole world than the New Testament, which has been called Good Trouble and is certainly very subversive. It never reaches out to us to say, look, you've probably read many interesting books about some extraordinary people in history, and no doubt you'll have heard many theories about life in the round. But why not have a read and see what these pages have to say on these issues? Why not see what you make of me? Perhaps you'll find me more interesting, or at least helpful in gaining an understanding of the state of mankind and the world. That's not what it says. The New Testament is much more dogmatic than that, claiming that here in these pages is the only way for men and women to know God and to be reconciled to him. In the pages of the New Testament is the only way that we can be delivered from the hold of sin, the condition of sin in our lives. These pages assert that there is only one way that we can avoid spending eternity in a state of misery and wretchedness and torment. That is what it says. Nothing less. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, Jesus says in John's Gospel, you will indeed die in your sins. And whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. It's one or the other. Everything depends upon him, this person, Jesus Christ. The New Testament effectively says, I'm not interested in your views about anything else until we've got this one thing clear. Your views on him. He is central. He is first. And if you're wrong about him, then whatever else you do or believe will make no difference. And that, of course, is not an easy call. John the Baptist had personally identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yet, as we heard read to us, he sends out two of his own team to ask Jesus if he really was the one who was to come, or were they to expect someone else. John's a powerful and confident character, the original muscular Christian not afraid of speaking out or taking on the system and the authorities. He chastises just about everybody who came to be baptized, calling some of them collectively a brood of vipers and handing out some pretty unpalatable advice to many of the others. And in the end, of course, he goes one step too far and is imprisoned for speaking out against King Herod for marrying the woman who had been his brother's wife. She wanted John's head, literally, but Herod feared John knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. But Herod could only protect John up to a certain point. And John, stuck in prison, and no doubt realizing that he's pretty close to the end of the the road, sends out these two messengers. The man who'd identified Christ sends out two people to ask this question. Because he realizes that it's the most important question. Everything rests on who Jesus is. Is he the Messiah or isn't he? Has John's preaching and his imprisonment and his impending death, has all that been in vain? As Jesus is Jesus, the one he claims to be, was John right to pin his faith on him? Or is he just kidding himself? 
John, perhaps like many of us, needed reassurance. And Jesus replies to John that his actions mirror what Isaiah said would be the saving actions of the Messiah. And his final word on the matter is simple. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Or in some translations, happy are those who do not stumble, who let nothing stand between them and a true belief in me. And of course, there are many who do stumble. The New Testament is full of accounts of those who stumble at Christ and his message. Somewhat ironically, Herod subsequently thinks Jesus is John the Baptist, risen from the dead. As today, there are clearly those who don't take him seriously, maybe not even giving a thought about who Jesus is at all. But then, as now, there are those who do look at him and were and are genuinely interested in him. But then they see the difficulties, particularly the difficulty of who he claims to be. Ah, yes, they say, I'm interested in Jesus. I like reading about him. I'm interested in his teaching. I'm certainly challenged by the way he lived his life. He was clearly a good man, maybe even a prophet. And if only more people like him were alive in this world today, then obviously it would be a much better place. But the trouble is, you asked me to believe in this other stuff, that he's the son of God, no human father, fully man and yet fully God. And you insist that he is the only way into the kingdom. I find all this difficult to accept. Surely, all sincerely held beliefs can and will lead us all into the kingdom of heaven. Surely he is just one way. Large numbers of people out there, maybe dare I say it, some in here as well, share such views. Open to Jesus' teaching, to listening to a good sermon, to reading books about him, in some ways not leaving him alone, but they cannot submit and believe on him. They stumble at a, at a doctrine concerning who he is. One of the saddest verses in the Bible I often quote is John 6, 66, when many of his disciples, having heard what Jesus said about having to eat his flesh and to drink his blood, that, and not, not doing that would mean they would have no, no life in them, those disciples left him, offended by his claims. And turning to the, uh, to the 12 disciples that are left, Jesus asks them, what about you? Will you leave me as well? It's another of those crucial questions. And Peter's response is simple, yet deeply profound. You, he says to Jesus, have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And we're staying. To those who stumble, maybe to ourselves, we need to say that we understand and sympathize with these difficulties. His claims are indeed extraordinary. Before Abraham was, I am, he said. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. And yes, his demand for total allegiance, to leave everything and follow him, is tough. But look at his authority, the way he expounds the scriptures in a way that no one ever did before. And look at his works, his miracles of healing, his works of power. And look too at his lowliness, his sympathy, his compassion. 
He could command the storm and quell the raging of the waves upon the sea. Yet he was a friend of outcasts and sinners. And although he could command the elements, he knew what it was to be tired and hungry. He suffered alongside those around him. Ultimately, of course, going to the cross. And look too at the mighty fact of the resurrection and at what followed throughout 2,000 years of history. He is the greatest force the world has ever known and human history would never have been written in the way that it has without him. Acknowledging the truth that we cannot explain it or understand it, we have to move at some point from head to heart. It's not about understanding and then believing, but accept and believe And then we begin to understand. The disciples on the M2, the Emmaus Road, asked each other after their encounter with Jesus, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And then they returned to Jerusalem and told the other disciples that it was indeed true. The Lord has risen. So dear friends, let me end on this note. Our relationship with God is determined solely and entirely and absolutely by Jesus Christ. If you tell me that you believe in God, I say to you that it is of no value if you do not believe in Christ. I am with Martin Luther. I know of no God but Jesus Christ. We cannot know God as our Father apart from Jesus. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. We have no forgiveness of sins if he, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had not come and died for us on the cross. But because he has, we know that our sins are forgiven. He and he alone came to do that, and he has done it. Our eternal destiny is determined solely by our relationship with him. And I assure you, in the name of God and of the Bible, that when we get to the great day of judgment, and it is coming, for we're all going to die, and we will all meet God, I solemnly assure you that you will only have one question to answer. You'll not be asked about the good things that you've done, or about your politics, or about your learning, or your understanding, or your knowledge. None of these things will matter. There is only one question that matters. What think ye of Christ? What do you make of my son? I sent him into the world and he came willingly. He came and I, the Lord, handed it all over to him, your redemption and your salvation, and he did his work. It meant suffering and scorn. It meant ignominy. It meant staggering up to Golgotha. It meant nails being driven into his holy flesh. But at the end of it all, he was able to cry out in triumph. It is finished. Redemption has been accomplished. And all who believe that and who believe in him are eternally saved. When Martha meets Jesus as he arrives in Bethany after the death of Lazarus, her brother, he tells her that Lazarus will rise again. She replies that she knows he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But then Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. 
And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He asked her. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. That's her answer to the killer question. What's yours? Will you accept that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the one who was to come, the way, the truth, and the life, as he claims to be? And will you stay with him? Or will you leave and carve out your own path? One of my favorite jokes as a child, and I use it a lot with my own children and grandchildren, is that one where the traffic update on the radio announces that there is a very important message for those on the M29 going to Birmingham. The M29 doesn't go to Birmingham. The reality is that there is only one way to enter the kingdom of heaven. Go back, says Jesus to the two who John sent. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who are diseased are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And so my final question is this. Do you know him? Is Jesus of Nazareth to you the Son of God and the Savior of the world, the Lord of the universe? Make certain that he is, for your eternal destiny depends upon it. Go to him. Stop arguing or reasoning or trying to understand at a distance. Go to him. And open your heart, acknowledge the killer question, and then along with Simon Peter, along with Martha, and along with me, declare that he is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. And today, as always, today is a good day to do just that. Amen.